This morning we're going to actually uh, be looking at Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7. And we've been in our series in Acts, we've been walking through that, and as you know, we stop along the way about once a month to actually take time to look specifically at our mission as Redemption Hill Church. And we deal with what that, uh, what that means for our lives, where we're all of Christ and all of life for all the world. And that's what our hope is to be as followers of Christ. And so this morning we're going to be taking a little different look as we, we dive into that passage. And as we break away just for this week from our series in Acts and we, we take time to look at the passage, I do want to encourage you as we're going along to really take heart to this particular passage, both as it relates to us as followers of Christ in terms of our own personal lives, but also followers of Christ in the culture and the world that we live in. For many, this week has been kind of a a week of anticipation. For some, it's been a week of stress. For others, it's been a week of hopefulness um, as our nation. And many of us waiting for the outcome of the presidential election. Yesterday, for some, the outcome brought happiness and joy, while others, it brought disappointment and frustration. It's easy at times to adopt our culture's source of hope and allow ourselves to become hopeful and depressed based on those who have direction over our nation. In fact, we can grow cold towards leaders and stop praying for God's salvation in their lives as well as for God's wisdom in their decisions. And it happens when we begin to adopt the culture's standard, the culture's source of hope. It happens when we move away from what God has instructed us to find our hope in, which is Him, and move into a place where we begin to identify more with the culture than we do with Christ Himself. As I was sifting through Facebook yesterday, one of the things that I noticed was the gloating and the vitriol from opposing sides that had become overwhelmingly evident. There was also kind of subtle jabs that were taking place and insinuations of disapproval if a person voted for one candidate or the other, and they were couched in seemingly noble statements, but they were made public for all to see. Like phrases like, my children can finally have hope and know what it looks like for a leader to respect people. Or or other phrases that came out with, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. All those are statements that are designed to correct and actually even condemn. They're not statements which are building unity, but they're statements that are building division. And the division is real. And people are no longer willing to disagree without making enemies out of the other. And see, while it's important that we seek those leaders who have similar belief structures and values, no leader has the ability to restore a nation. No leader has the ability to restore a nation. Actually, spiritual restoration of the nation begins with the humble discernment and repentance of God's people. That's what he says. That spiritual restoration of a nation is a direct result of God's people, not government leaders who are elected, not government officials, not President Trump or President Biden, not the senators who are chosen. 
our hope and spiritual restoration comes through the body of Christ, through His people, not through a singular leader. So let's go ahead and see what Second Chronicles has to say about that. Let's read this together. Second Chronicles, we're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 7 and go through verse 16. And it says this, It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at your scripture, as we look at your word, may our prayer be one of humble seeking of you. Father, if there's sin that's in our heart this morning, may we just put it at your feet. If there's burdens and concerns and frustrations and cares that are overwhelming us this morning or that are consuming our minds and our thoughts, may we put it at your feet. Lord God, I pray that your word would go forth in power and that you would implant it on each of our hearts this morning. Father, move me out of the way. May it be you who speaks your word. And Father, may we rejoice knowing that you are a God who is sovereign, who still speaks to his people. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, perfect. One of the things that happens in this passage is the fact that Solomon has been praying. He's established the temple, and the temple has been built, and Solomon is beginning to to, to pray for his people, pray for the, the consecration. And we're told actually in the earlier part of Second Chronicles chapter 7 that when the dedication of the temple came, that Solomon brought 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep to be sacrificed in dedication of the house of God. What's interesting here is that in verse 12, it says, Then a Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. What he begins to lay out is not a place where what he's desiring is necessarily the sacrifices of animals, but what he's desiring is the sacrifice of his people. What he's beginning to tell Solomon in this moment is I'm going to show you what is a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to me. I'm going to show you that the temple is not best consecrated by the sacrifice of animals, but it is that the life that followers that with him have are the very thing that are to be sacrificed before God. That it is to be our lives submitted to God. That's the holy and pleasing sacrifice before him. Well, he says in verse 13, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land 
or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. He's directly speaking to the followers of God, to his people. And he's saying, listen, the healing of a land, the spiritual restoration of a land begins with my people. And he's saying, this is a holy and pleasing sacrifice before God, before me. The essence of the word Christian means to be a follower of Christ. Webster Dictionary says that it's a person who professes belief in the teachings of Christ. It's more than somebody who simply professes. It's one who follows, who's submitted, who's surrendered. surrendered. And what God is giving in this moment is hope that in the face of a rebellious nation, in the face of a nation that seems divided and twisted up, and separated. God's giving hope in this for the promise of healing nations. And the hope of God's promise for healing nations is clear in this passage. The promise comes through the promised people or through the, the, the chosen people or the people of God. The promise comes through those who have repented and believed on Jesus. So the hope of God's promise for healing nations is threefold. The first is this. God is sovereign over the suffering and hardship of nations. God is sovereign over the suffering and hardship of nations. Whatever state that you see our nation in today, whether you're hopeful or you're discouraged, God is sovereign over that. The division that is existing in our country today, God is still sovereign. He's still over it. He's still reigning over it. He's still working. If you'll recall for a moment, Habakkuk himself asked the question, God was using an evil nation to bring judgment against Israel. And Habakkuk said simply, what are you doing, God? And God said, if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't understand. We need to remember that. God's ways are different than our ways. And we need to remember that God is still sovereign. He's still sitting on his throne. Our hope doesn't rise and fall with the leaders that we have. And so whether or not you liked President Trump or whether or not you're, you like President Biden, it doesn't matter. Your hope should not rise and fall based upon who is in leadership. As followers of Christ, our unity should not be divided over who is leading a nation. We may have a preference. We may have a desire. But we need to understand that the healing of a nation begins with God's people. You see, the reason that the church is called to be an example is that it should have people that disagree on the peripheral things but disagree well and remain unified. As Christians, you should be able to put a devout supporter of Donald Trump and a devout supporter of Joe Biden in the same room 
And after having talked it through together and shared why they've chosen one and why they've chosen the other, they should be able to embrace and love one another and be able to be in relationship with one another because their hope is not in them, but it is in Jesus. And they trust what God says. That God is still sovereign even over the rulers that he places over those nations. And so our hope doesn't rise and fall with a specific leader. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 says this. It says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. The God that we serve is the God who is sovereign over all things. And as followers of Christ, we have to remember that the healing of nations, the hope that we have is God is still working and he is still sovereign. He remains sovereign over all leaders, over all people, over all things, and over all nations. Secondly, the first being that God is sovereign over the suffering and hardship of nations. Secondly, suffering and hardship of nations is a call for believers to humbly seek God. Suffering and hardship of nations is a call for believers to humbly seek God. I worry at times that we adopt the culture's way of dealing with difficulty. God actually says that when we see division amongst our nation, when we see a a nation in turmoil, when we see pestilence in the land and famine in the land, we see destroyed crops and we see fires and we see people hurting within our nation, that it's actually a call for believers to seek God. It's actually God's visual reminder that we are to seek Him and to seek Him with humility. See, God expects His people to humble themselves before Him, pray for spiritual renewal daily, and turn from sin present in their lives. In verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, true passion and renewal can only occur when God is at the center of every aspect of our lives. Every aspect. So what does it really mean to humbly seek God? Well, there's two aspects of it. The first deals with prayerful obedience for and to His will. Prayerful obedience for and to His will. So I pray with obedience for God's will, and I pray with obedience to God's will, that I would carry that will out. Now, Cyril Barber points this out. He says simply this, to seek his face also involves the seeking of the Lord's favor and blessing. Numerous scripture we read of the Lord making his face shine on his people, and this means that he's accepting them, looking upon them favorably, and is ready to do them good. We might say that they are enjoying God's smile. We need to be a people who are seeking God's face humbly by first prayerfully, obediently, one, 
praying for God's will and seeking his will, but also praying that we might follow it. At times, we can get caught up in the blame game of being frustrated with those that oppose biblical values in our own leadership. And God commands us to actually humble ourselves before him. He promises that if we humble ourselves, he'll use us to restore a nation. Oftentimes, we pray for things with obedience, but we desperately plea with God not to use us in that way. Think about that, right? We want God to do things, but we don't want to actually be the one that he's calling to do them. How many times does God call us to go and to share our faith with somebody? We're like, gosh, I really want them to know Jesus, uh, but God, don't use me. That's just awkward. That's funky. I don't want to get in that situation again. Uh, other times, we ask God to, to reach people groups throughout the world that need Jesus. But we're like, God... I'll pray for those that go. In fact, I'll even send money. But God, please don't send me to Zimbabwe. But please don't send me to a foreign land where we're going to be persecuted. This morning as we came out to gather, and it's cold. There's no doubt about it. As I share with you, it's like I'm wearing a jacket. That's my temperature. My temperature means that when I start wearing a jacket, it's cold, Right? And it would be easy for us to look out and say simply, it's not worth gathering because it's cold. But I'm reminded even of recently of our own missionaries in Bangladesh, where they've dealt with typhoons. And the one request of of the missionary that serves there, Sudeep, was simply for a motorbike. A motorbike. Why? Why? so that he could go up and down to the villages in Bangladesh that's been ravaged by typhoon and destruction so that he could minister to these people. Now, what you need to know about Bangladesh is literally there are like less than 10 evangelical missionaries in the country of Bangladesh. It's staggering. We complain because it's cold outside. He's asking for a motorbike so he can ride up and down the country ministering to these villages. Some of them two and a half, three hours away that he's riding basically on a glamorized scooter to bring the gospel. We can pray for the gospel to be known, but do we pray that we're a part of it? Do we pray obediently asking God to use us in the way that he's calling his people to be used? When we're pulled out of our comfort zone, how do we respond to that? Are we responding in obedience? Are we seeking God's face, knowing that what actually honors God is not the fact that we simply prayed to Him, but that it was became with a posture of sacrifice, of a life that is sacrificed completely to Him? That's what He's asking for. That's what He's desiring, is a people who are seeking His face, that are desiring to bring honor to His name that are desiring to have lives that actually, in essence, bring favor upon because they're walking in obedience with him. So the first aspect of humbly seeking his face is this idea of prayerfully and praying with obedience. The second aspect of humbly seeking his face is faithful repentance of sin. Faithful repentance of sin. 
God has called us to be a repenting people. That's what he's desiring from us. And God requires far more than a simple profession of faith. God desires that we seek him and turn from our wicked ways. And for many of us, we don't think of our small sin as wicked. And yet God says that the restoration comes as a result of his people turning from their wicked ways, not the world turning. See, the world can act like the world. It's going to act foolish. But the followers of Christ, Christ has called us to, to lay down our lives, to repent of sin that is at work within our lives. Ever dealt with your own sin and looked at somebody else and thought, well, my sin's not too bad compared to theirs? That's deception. My sin is just as destructive as anybody else's, and my sin affects others. That's what he's saying. He's saying that you can't just stand by and say that your sin only affects you. He's actually saying that it affects everyone. Not only does it affect the body of Christ, but it actually affects the nation as a whole. Because God desires to work through you. Second Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5 gives us an example of sins that will be present in the last days. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Those are areas that we should be sifting in our own hearts and asking God, do, do I need to be repenting of these things? Each and every day, God is calling us to be a repenting people, to begin to seek those areas of our heart. Are, are, are there things there that resonate to you? Pride? Lovers of self? Disobedient to parents? Here's a kicker, ungrateful? Slanderous, without self-control? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, what that means is claiming Christ and his promises and yet not living by those promises or living in his power? Not living by faith? We can be so self-sufficient that we don't live by the power of God. We actually deny the power of God. And so the question that we need to honestly ask ourselves is, how are you living by faith? Is there anything that you're doing where you're living by faith? It may be that God's having to change your attitude or your heart. That God's desiring to renew your heart. It, it may mean that you're doing the hard things and the hard work of engaging difficult people. It may mean that you're trusting God that he's going to provide for you and you don't see how it's going to happen. And it may mean that God's teaching you to love somebody well, 
even when you don't see them initially as lovable. The truth is, is that we need to repent of these attitudes. But we also need to repent of some other things. For many within our own nation, we confuse God's instruction to his people for his instructions to a nation. In a recent book called The The Tragedy of American Compassion, it, it looks at the church's response to the homeless. Now, Jesus says that the homeless will always be amongst us. That means that as followers of Christ, they're always in front of us for an opportunity to minister to and to come alongside and to care for. But in the tragedy of American compassion, one of the things it's shared is how the church throughout the the 1800s and into the early 1900s was the primary resource for caring for the homeless. Over time, they shifted and they began to usurp that to, to the government. And what started transpiring was actually less recovery Homelessness actually increased, not decreased. Because the church was in the business of ministering to people one-on-one. Actually looking at the heart and the role and the, that what was really at work within the person's life. We need to be careful that we don't take what God has given to the church and try to make the government do what God has given us to do. James tells us that pure and undefiled religion is dealing with widows and orphans and remaining unstained from the world. My question to you and to each of us is how are we caring for widows and orphans, not via what the government does, but how are we doing it by the way in which God has called us to do that? How are we involving ourselves either in ministries or supporting ministries that minister to widows and orphans or to the needy? It's a place that is the church that we need to honestly ask a real question and probably involves a level of repentance where we've easily moved past those segments and allowed other people to deal with what God has called us to deal with. In the same way, in the 1970s, one of the largest groups that was pro-abortion was a clergy group. out of comfort clergy took a major role in pushing and advocating for abortion and in many cases followers of Christ stood by and watched believing that it wasn't their problem as followers of Christ we have a responsibility to stand in the gap to, to value life as followers of Christ and as his church we need to recognize the things that God's given us as his church and not try to give it to somebody else one person put it this way he says I refuse to let my public passion exceed my private devotion We need to be a people who are privately devoted to Christ and then have it expressed publicly. 
but we can't be a people who publicly express one thing, who inwardly are doing something different. God's called us to be faithfully repentant as people. So the first is that God is sovereign. The first aspect of our hope is God is still sovereign over nations in the midst of their suffering and hardship. Secondly, suffering and hardship of a nation is a call to believers to seek him in humility. And seeking him in humility requires prayerful obedience and requires faithful repentance. And then finally, God hears and attends to the prayers of those who humbly seek him. So his promise is that he attends to the prayers of those who seek him with humility. It says in verse 15, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. God's promise is that when we come before him with humility, our prayers are heard, there is a nearness to him, and he is attended, he's attentive to it. He's attending to those prayers, to those requests. Now, that seems a little bit different because I think that often our teaching on prayer can be poor in this area, actually, because it's uncomfortable. But Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. My prayer is empowered by my humility and repentance. God is desiring to work through the prayer of those righteous that are made righteous in Christ that are submitted to him. Proverbs 28.9 adds, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If I know what God has called me to do, and I'm refusing to do it, and then I cry out to God, and I ask him to do something, and I ask him to, to work on behalf, it says here that that prayer is an abomination. What he's saying is, first, live your life submitted to me. Come to me. Submit to me. Come in power. Come with a right heart. Ask me to change my life. Ask God to work in my life. James 5.16 puts it another way. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What God's saying is, when we bring our prayer life, what he's asking for is that our life begins to, to seek and desire to match up with his heart on this. We can't expect to remain in unrepentant sin and pray to God and ask him to work and then be frustrated when God doesn't work. We come to God with contrite and broken hearts. We come to God as a repentant people. Constantine, the early Roman emperor, said this, The eternal, holy, and unfathomable goodness of God does not allow us to wander in darkness, but shows us the way of salvation. This I have seen in others as well as in myself. You see, when we stop loving God the way that he commanded, we lose the passion that he intended and develop a spirit of apathy. God desires his church to be the transformers and changers, not to be apathetic and comfortable. His church is to look more like Christ than the world. Christ's church is to look more like him than the world. 
How does God respond? How does Jesus respond when persecuted? How does Jesus respond when rulers are walking irresponsibly? How does Jesus respond when there's division amongst Jews and Gentiles? How does Jesus respond when people are being oppressed? How does Jesus respond to the needy? How does Jesus respond to the repentant who've been involved in immorality? And how does Jesus respond to the self-righteous leaders of the day? That's what we need to be aligned with, not the culture. And so my question this morning for each of us is what is it that God is looking to do within our own hearts? Where is God calling us to seek his faith in prayerful obedience? Where is God calling us to repent individually and then also in our attitudes and reflections within his church? Have we become like the self-righteous leaders of the day who stand back and criticize? Who point fingers? Or are we humbly seeking the face of God being Christ's representative to a world in desperate need for Him? See, when we humble ourselves before God, and repent of existing sin and bridge our humility and repentance through prayer, others are able to see Christ through us. It's through those who have responded to Christ's grace that others will experience him. And contrary to popular belief, the world is still looking for an answer, and unfortunately they seldom find it because of the apathy of those who have repented and believed on him. Rolling Stone suggested to Brad Pitt a while back, that he had it all. Brad Pitt responded this way. He says, I'm the guy who's got everything. I know. But I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. God desires us to not be left with ourselves, and God desires the world not to be left with themselves. What he desires them is to be left with Jesus to see Jesus, to repent and believe on Jesus. And may that be our prayer this morning, that we rest in the hope of God and that the hope of God moves us to be a people who are seeking his face with humility, prayerfully, obediently, with a heart of repentance. May our hope being God, the sovereign God of all nations, who desires to use his people to change his nations, knowing that he is a God who is faithful to answer our prayer and attend to our prayer as we're seeking him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we rest in the hope of your word, May we be reminded that you've called us to be a repenting people. God, may we not look out and point the finger at others, but God, may we see that you have brought us into this world for the purpose of displaying your glory. May we be reminded of Ephesians 3, where your church is to be your glory in the world. 
May we embrace that. May we not act like the rest of the world in division and hopelessness and vitriol and gloating. But may we see that we serve the true king. And the true king, Father, reigns over all things. Lord, may we rejoice in the hope that we have that you are still sovereign, you're still at work, that you make it clear to us and remind us that we need to be a people who are humbly seeking your face and that you genuinely attend to our prayers as we humbly seek you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.